0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the 2022 Annual National Cancer Prevention Day Workshop. I am Dr. Janie He, Dean of the College of Nursing at the University of Kentucky. As a member of the Less Cancer Foundation Board, and I've had the honor to serve on this board for 10 years, I could not be more thrilled to see the shift of this year's Cancer Prevention Workshop to highlight the work that is being done on the front lines to address the impact of COVID-19 on the workforce. Every year we have been fortunate to highlight researchers and academic leaders at the University of Kentucky who are on the front lines bringing solutions to cancer. So this year, colleagues from the University of Kentucky College of Nursing, College of Medicine, and UK Healthcare will share our collective belief the health of nurses and health providers is critical for sustainable equity and delivery of care to patients, families, communities, and health systems. Today, our expert panel will address how we have been challenging the belief that nurses and health providers are superheroes and can do anything and how we have been working hard at the University of Kentucky to raise mental health awareness and prevent suicide in the health profession workforce. Before we get started, I would like to ask our participants to introduce themselves and share with everyone everyone what what they are doing here at the University of Kentucky and why they are passionate about holistic wellness in the workforce. Let's start with Joe Alverson and Dr. Kelso.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Reverend Joe Alverson. I'm the Director of Pastoral Care Services for UK Healthcare. And I'm passionate about this because I believe taking care of our staff is vital. If we don't take care of the staff, who is going to take care of our patients? So I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the panel today.
2: Thank you, Dr. (laughs) Kelso. I'm Dr. Lynn Kelso, and I am a faculty member uh, in the undergraduate program at the University of Kentucky, and I'm also an acute care nurse practitioner working with the pulmonary critical care division in one of our medical ICUs, and, you know, I work with directly with COVID patients, um, and also I work with all of our other critically ill patients when I'm at our, our smaller community hospital. Thank you. Dr. Wamsley. Hi, my name is Dr. Leanne
3: Wamsley. I'm the chair of Work Life and the director of student wellness here at UK College of Nursing. It has long been on my heart and I'm extremely passionate about the mental health and well-being of our faculty, staff, and students. Thank you. Dr. Jennings. Thank you, Jenny. I'm Connie Jennings.
4: I am an internist here at UK, and I am the medical director for the Integrative Medicine Clinic here. So my position has interfaced with a lot of different staff in many different directions, and I am thrilled to be part of this initiative. Thank you, Jamie.
5: Thank you. Emily? Emily? Hi, I'm Emily Jordan, a student at the University of Kentucky College of Nursing. I also work as a nurse's care tech at the Behavioral Health Unit at UK, and I'm the co-author of the historical nonfiction book, The War Queens. Thank you. Kent?
6: Thank you, Dean Heed. My name is Kim Brower. I'm a cardiovascular progressive nurse here at the <laughs> University of Kentucky. I'm also a clinical instructor uh, at the University of Kentucky College of Nursing, and I am a acute care DNP student with a May 2022 graduation date. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so a couple of years ago, after graduating with my BSN from UK, uh, I saw a gap in practice really of how providers, specifically our nurses, care for themselves. And so that's what my DNP project is focusing on. And really, why I'm so passionate about uh, mental health within our nursing workforce.
0: Thank you, Dr. Parrish.
7: Hi, I'm Dr. Evelyn Parrish. I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner in private practice, and also an associate professor of nursing at the College of Nursing in the um, Psych Mental Health NP track. And. Psych has been um, the care of folks with psychiatric illness has been a passion of mine since my undergraduate just a few years ago um, or, or longer. And it's it's so important in patients um, that I see in the client, excuse me, in, the, in their students to impart on them the importance of that holistic care, which very strongly is their psychiatric mental health status. Thank you.
8: Thank you. Mark, thanks Dean Heath. Uh, My name is Mark Woods and I'm the Chief Nursing Officer for Behavioral Health at UK Healthcare and at Eastern State Hospital. Also very proud to say that um, I'm a doctoral student in the College of Nursing at UK as well, so I'm right there with Kent. I graduate uh, in the spring, so I'm really excited about that. But I've been a nurse for uh, 29 years and I'm very passionate about caring for our caregivers and their mental health. Uh, And it's it's important for me, uh, just as Joe mentioned, uh, nurses really represent the largest component of our healthcare system, and that's why it's important.
0: Thank you, Mark. So today we will cover four objectives. We will describe our landscape in Kentucky, on mental health and wellness of the health profession workforce. We'll recognize the toll COVID-19 has taken on our workforce. We'll describe strategies we have taken and or are continuing to take to help decrease stress and burnout and optimize recruitment and retention, and we will reflect and comment on our own journey with self-care to recover and rebuild from the pandemic. Before we jump in to hear from our panelists, let's take a listen to a 3-minute video that UK Healthcare has put together. It's a series, Voices on the Frontlines.
9: I've had significant ER experience. I have dealt with losing patients my whole career and the aftermath of families losing loved ones my whole career. But COVID is something entirely different. We throw everything we have at it and we still lose patients anyway. And that's the hardest thing. Like losing families, it's the aftermath of that, of the loss of a patient that's the hardest thing.
10: I mean, the ER has always been busy. It's always been a challenging job. We've always had high patient volumes and the sickest patients around, but I've never felt quite this stretched thin before. Like it comes with the territory of being an ER nurse. Well, emergency departments are always challenging places to work. You're dealing with um,
9: patients who are dealing with acute illnesses that they weren't expecting. So. It's always been a challenging, stressful place to work. We call it um, organized chaos. Um, To us, it's organized. To other people, probably it looks like a mess, but um, we just kind of adjust to any changes that occur. So that's one of our strengths.
11: I did a lot of work with families and patients before COVID. Um, We would have a whole lot of family members here, which unfortunately, since the pandemic has started, we've not been able to have as many family members here. So that has changed my job quite a bit in that uh, I am having to almost stand in for family sometimes and provide support to patients even more than I already did. Situations where we have a person who is dying where maybe only one or two family members can be here. Sometimes none of them can be here. And I will be with that patient through that.
9: Seeing a family have to say goodbye to a mother through a pane of glass catching a a wife who's just heard that her husband didn't make it. I mean, we are, we are struggling. (laughs) It's hard to see that much loss and and that much heartache and palpable sorrow for such a long period of time. And to have hope that maybe it's gonna end and then have this second surge hit again has been devastating for many of us. Um, It's hard. It's really hard.
11: I'm doing a lot more staff care uh, than I did before. I've been very worried about our staff. Uh, I see a lot of traumatic stress. I see a lot of burnout. I see a lot of very experienced, caring, very good providers who have left the bedside uh, because of COVID.
10: You know, we used to, like be able to go more liberally into patients' rooms or if someone arrived in distress, there was not this moment where you freeze and you're like, hang on, let me put on everything before I go help them. You just go, you just jump on it. It's been so stifling. Extra separation and like extra eggshells to walk on just to get people what they need. I know people think it's not a threat to me, and it's not a problem for me,
9: but just think about the people you love most in this world and how they would feel if you weren't there any longer. Like, that's why we care about these people. We care about each and every one of them. It doesn't matter to me what your socioeconomic status is, where you fall on political lines. None of that matters to me. I care about each and every patient that, that walks into this building that walks into these rooms, and that's the people we want to save, and and we need help saving them. The best thing that anybody can do is help us save you by, by taking a step to help save yourself. These deaths are preventable.
11: My emergency people, they do a fabulous job, and they are overwhelmed. In the emergency department, we're used to dealing with large numbers of people. We're used to dealing with a lot of patients coming in. What we were not used to is as sick as so many of them are, and the pace with which, with which we're caring for them.
10: I um, helped intubate a gentleman, and we asked him prior to intubation if he would like to call his family, and he wasn't sure what to say and he ended up not taking that opportunity. And we didn't have time to impress upon him the severity of this, the reality that he might not get that opportunity again. And I went home and I grappled with this a lot. And actually, I talked with my husband about this a lot. I was like, I don't know if I should have pressured him more or if that would be too much stress in an already stressful situation for him because he did get intubated and I, it's the emergency department, so these people, we only see the front end, we don't know how it turns out. But I struggled and struggled and was like, was that the right thing? Should we really have pressed more? We didn't have a lot of time. And I struggled and my husband was like, why are you so fixated on this? And I was like, because it's going to happen again. This is not going to be the last person who comes in very sick that has a couple moments to decide, do we want to make a phone call? Do you want to make it? Do we need to make it before they get intubated? It's going to be, and it wasn't. We've done that. And I think that's a huge takeaway. To,
9: I think people think that it's not gonna affect me, it's gonna affect somebody else who's older or sicker. Um, but it, it, it knows no boundaries. It doesn't care what race you are, what religion you are,
11: I wish I could take you down the hallways and see all the young people on ventilators or who are turned on their stomachs or who are on an artificial heart-lung machine because their lungs don't work anymore. I wish I could have you sit down and just spend 10 minutes listening to our nurses, our respiratory therapists, our techs, just about their fears for their families, their fears for their children. I wish I could bring you in to see.
10: You know, What are the risks if I were to contract COVID? What are the benefits of the vaccine? Because you can spread it to your family, you can spread it to children, children who don't have vaccinated adults in their lives. They can bring it home from school and spread it to those adults. Those adults can spread it to children. It's very real. And this particular variant has made young people very sick. They are not immune. They're not out of the woods just because they're young. I, I cannot
9: stress enough how crucial this vaccine is. We just don't have enough resources to take care of everybody. We just don't. There's so much information viable, reliable information about this vaccine. Sure, there's lots of other information that's unreliable. So the information that you get, make sure that it's real information and not fake information. That's okay to have questions and it's okay to have concerns, but make sure the decision you make is one that's based on real information. I mean, we cannot do it without them. We cannot do it without everybody pulling together to fight it together. We we cannot.
0: Wow, that is so powerful. Every time I hear it and see it, just really, really hits me right where um, it hurts. So let's talk to two of our colleagues, Joe Alberson and Dr. Kelso, who have literally been on the front lines of COVID since day one. So I'd like to start with a question to you, Joe. Did anything surprise you with this video? What seems to be different this time versus other times, and how are you taking care of your very own employees, your chaplains?
1: Thank you for asking. I, I am with you. The video gets me every time I watch it. I think it is the emotion uh, of of the people that they are experiencing. Um, it is the loss, and we are prepared for that. Uh, and as pastor, as chaplains in the organization, um, but as nursing, you're also prepared for that, but not to the Extent that we've seen it with COVID 19. Um, so I think it's been very difficult for the staff um, and having to potentially stand in also as family for them. So I think that's difficult as well. As far as our, our, our how it has impacted us, um, you know, just some of the metrics we've kept in our department, we saw around 30,000 people at the end of the year of uh, the beginning of COVID and the then of fiscal year 20. And we saw about 3,000 people less uh, last year, fiscal 21. And so we, the reason for that is we had less people in the organization because we were always prepared just in case there might be a spike, um, there might be a surge, and we always wanted to be prepared for that. But we saw less people, you know, less, less. I would say less patients, less families, because so they weren't here. Um, but what we did do, you know, when we were here, and we've been here the entire time during the pandemic, we've been in the building all the time, is um, we also made sure that when we have patients and families, we took care of them. We also took care of the staff, Um, and that staff, whether they were inside the COVID unit or staff outside of the COVID unit, um, it it did not matter because COVID did not stop. Um, You asked me what was different this time um, from last time, and I think the biggest thing from that is that I I equate this to kind of like a storm. I think that we can um, weather through the storm, and we're fine because you know the other side's coming, and there's going to be a lull. With COVID, there's never been that lull. There's never been that pause and that ending. Um And the other part of that goes with usually with the storm, it ends or at least you can step away from it and come back to it. And COVID has not allowed that. It didn't matter whether you were here working or you went home. Social media, news media, everything, conversations were always about the pandemic. And it's been very difficult, I think. Um, as, as far as what's going on, you know, with, with the pandemic itself. Uh, you asked, how, how am I caring for the chaplains of the organization? Um, one of the things that I'm doing with them, and it sounds very simplistic, is I'm checking in on them. I'm asking them, how are you doing? How are things going? Um, I'm also watching them, you know, just watching how they're doing, how their work is going. Listening when they actually tell me how their visits go with patients, um, how their work is going. I'm listening for that as well. And one of the things that I'm doing to make sure that I'm encouraging uh, good care for, for the chaplains of the organization is to make sure that um, we are um, taking days away as we need them. Uh, use your vacation time, use your holiday time, step away as needed. Um, talk with me about that, share with me um, so that we can figure out how best to care for you in those moments.
0: Thank you, Joe. So Dr. Kelso, I'd like to hear your perspective on the video and the same question uh, what are you seeing that's different this time as an acute care nurse practitioner? Uh, how have your services uh, been impacted and and then share what you're doing how you're translating the research that you did the study you did for your DNP project, uh, how that's helping
2: our students and their well-being. I think first, when when the pandemic first started, we kind of sequestered patients to specific units and the rest of us took care of all the other patients. And I think one of the hard pieces was, while we weren't allowing visitors in the COVID rooms and with patients who had COVID, none of the other patients who were there could have visitors either. So you had families who weren't able to be with their loved ones and and we still had people who were dying from other diseases and other illnesses, and they couldn't be there. And so it was hard all the way around for, for patients that we were caring for in all of our different ICUs. And throughout the pandemic, the impact to our advanced practice provider team, we've had to adjust how we've given care to patients. We've had to move to different units. We've had to spread out so that we could balance the amount of care that we were providing to the number of COVID patients that we had throughout the the medical ICUs when they were when they were moved between different uh, the different medical units instead of just on one unit. But I think we've gone through these these waves more than just the surges. We've gone through these waves. We had a period where we had a number of pregnant women who came in with COVID and having to deal with potentially the loss of the baby, the loss of the mother, um, the loss of both, that was very difficult for a period of time. You know, we were able to save some, uh, we weren't able to save them all. And that was very hard to deal with, I think, for a lot of the providers, particularly when we had such a number of them all in a short period of time. But I think also we're seeing now that not only are we still seeing the COVID patients coming in and they're younger, they're sicker, um, we're losing more young people than we had previously, but we're seeing other patients come in who are even sicker than they might have been earlier on. And part of that is the delay in getting care during the pandemic when people weren't trying to come to healthcare or coming to the hospital. And um, the, the look in the ER didn't surprise me as much because we go down there and when a patient's admitted through the ER, you know, the pulmonary team, we go down there and we take care of them down there in the, the area where we have the patients who are isolated until we can get them a bed up on the floor. And it can be it can be challenging because you're moving between the ICU up on the ninth or tenth floor or wherever, or down in the first floor with the with the in the emergency department. So you're running back and forth and trying to provide enough care to patients everywhere. It's you know again, I think part of it is we also care for the ICU at our community our community type hospital, and that almost I'd like to I'd like to say it gives us a break from the acuity of the COVID patients, because we don't care for COVID patients there. However, we do see a lot more, that acuity there of patients is very, very high. And part of that is because we get the patients who don't have COVID who are critically ill. And how we take care of those patients, there. So we really never get a break from that acuity of patients that we have. Caring for ourselves, I think, is a high priority, but we've also had outbreaks of COVID within the team where we've had practitioners who've had to be off under quarantine for a period of time. So we've all had to pick up extra shifts and work additional time to make sure that we're covering enough to take care of all of the spots that we need and all of the patients that we have here. So that's been a challenge, I think, for everybody to try to make sure we pick up. And that's a problem with the nursing staff, too, where you're where you have a shortage of staff and people are picking up additional time instead of being able to take off the time that could really be helpful for them. So it's really finding little things that can be beneficial to you and helpful for you to regenerate your enthusiasm or your passion for providing patient care when you're not in the hospital.
0: Thank you, Lynn. And we'll circle back around and share some of the strategies that you have brought into the classroom with your your students. So let's shift gears a little bit. Research has skyrocketed, showing the impact of brain health and the power of building resiliency practices to change habits and to help address mental health and wellness in the workforce. Uh, We've been very fortunate to be on the forefront with a lot of this work to impact our employees, our faculty, staff and our students. So we'll hear next from Dr. Wamsley and Dr. Jennings who have been actively engaged in this space way before the pandemic started. And we believe that the examples that we'll share are pretty powerful about our academic partnership that we've had and that our audience can look at ways that they can modify some of these strategies and adapt them. So Leanne, would you please start off talking about the CPR work and the barn work and also the high performance brain function program. In three
3: minutes, Dr. (laughs) Walmsley. Thank you. Our college has an intentional commitment to support our students with our cultivating practices of resilience program, CPR programming. Why? Well, in 2018, the American College of Health Association reported that in a survey with 88,000 college students, 19% had felt so depressed it was difficult to function, 22% had felt overwhelming anxiety, and 5% had intentionally cut, burned, or otherwise self-injured. So what are we doing here at University of Kentucky? We are providing a dedicated, quiet space for our students. This space contains a massage chair, There's a TV screen for programs and music to facilitate quiet reflection. We have coloring supplies, uh, books, reflective journaling. We also have a very nice supply of yoga equipment. We regularly visit all undergraduate classrooms to remind them to practice self-care and to give our contact numbers so we can support them. All of our course shelves have um, mental health resources linked to them. We've had generous funding from Women in Philanthropy to to support our BARN programs, which are bring action right now for student mental health. We have provided mindful retreats at Chaker Village for professional healthcare students. We also have had a partnership with the College of Law um, where we have created a six-week high-performance brain training for law students and our DNP students. We have members from CELT, our Interprofessional Center for Education, uh, Integrative Medicine, and Business Gatton Business College to help us with that. Um, COVID-19 brought very unexpected changes to the college with mandated at-home schooling. And like Joe Alverson mentioned, we had a check-in care campaign. We simply checked in. We called each and every student and just asked them, are your basic needs being met? And found that two of our students were living in their cars. We subsequently were able to support them and find housing. After hearing about our checking and care campaign, the university at large brought a similar campaign and began calling students. UK also awarded our Mind, uh, Mindfulness in Newly Developing Students of Healthcare. They awarded them the student group of the year and this group was created as a result of the, shake, of the retreats at Checker Village.
0: Thank you, Leanne. You can see how proud we are of this work. So, Connie, I'd like for you to share your story because you actually have this vision for UK healthcare to establish an integrative health clinic. And that vision was yours for well over 10 years. Tell us how that journey started and why it started. Thank you, Janie. You
4: know, I love to tell this story. <laughs> We're very proud of the impact that our relatively new integrative medicine clinic has made at UK, and particularly during the last two years. It was a slow, quiet climb over about 15 years. Truly, we started out as kind of a little ragtag tribe that worked out of the trunks of our cars. (laughs) We started out doing community events. Primarily, one morning at four o'clock in the morning, we were at the UPS station talking to all the drivers as they took off on on their routes for the day. But as we hung together and the administration at UK became more aware of this impact, we finally reached the point of having a clinic. And when COVID hit, our clinic was about almost three years old. So, we were fairly well established, and we were able to offer services such as acupuncture, aromatherapy, and massage, Reiki, music therapy, art therapy, narrative medicine, and animal assisted therapy. That's probably the most popular one. Um, I hope I didn't leave out anyone. These services have become Popular in inpatient and the outpatient world. The administrators are supporting us. We have many who now say, okay, I was doing integrative medicine before it was integrative medicine. We've shown people the definition and why it's important. We have patrons who are cancer survivors, transplant survivors, um, childhood cancer survivors, and they support us, they want to see us grow. We now have about 20 staff members. We have active research going on in each area of our services. And we've had several papers printed in the last two years. And we've learned how to manage a virtual platform. Many of our services became virtual in the last 18 months. We um, have served about 3,500 visits in the last 18 months and a thousand extra thousand visits on top of that were visits to our staff with uh, massage events. We go to the clinics or to the um, ER, the OR and provide massages for the staff members. Everyone loves it. And we have a patron who provided us with the funds to do that for the staff. We do not have an accurate count of how many touches the Animal Assisted Therapy Program has made for us. Everybody loves the dogs. Prior to COVID, we had about 35 volunteers who brought their dogs in regularly. With the COVID changes, that number did dwindle, and we were not able to see patients, but we have been able to see the staff. And the staff contact with these darling dogs has been amazing in the last two years. One story that I I will never forget was, we met um, the nurses as they come in at seven, at the door where they all enter, and they stop to take a moment to pet the dogs. And one nurse said, this is the first morning in months I have come to work without crying. And it was all because she was petting a friendly golden retriever. So the, the COVID effect definitely has taught us a lot. We learned a lot about resiliency, that's obvious we learned how good we are at pulling together. The volunteer effort that we all contributed to to get the vaccine out was phenomenal. That was nursing. All these nursing students showed up at the stadium to give vaccine. Pharmacy was there from dawn to dusk. We made it happen. And that, that was a good thing about COVID. It pulled us all together but at the same time some of the ugly truths became uglier during covid i mean we know in our country typically we quote the number of about 400 suicides in the healthcare profession a year and in the first year of covid the number that was quoted was 26 health providers who committed suicide there's Probably no question that these numbers are underreported. But if we drill down into this problem just a little, we find some very embarrassing and heartbreaking facts. Healthcare providers are afraid to ask for help. This is something we need to pay attention to. Doctors particularly say that they are afraid to seek help because they are afraid they'll lose their jobs, they'll lose their credibility. Some are afraid that their information might not be kept confidential. They're afraid that they may be reported or when they apply for a license, they will have to report that they've had counseling like this. We have to fix this. COVID has shown us that we need to make this easier and less painful. Remove the stigma. We must encourage all of us to take care of each other. I have the chance to talk with all of our new faculty when they come on board. And I have now started asking each faculty member to put the phone number for the CDC lifeline in their phones. Research shows us that if we are worried about someone and their health, we need to ask. Many people say they don't know if they should ask or not. You should. You should ask. We need to let our colleagues know we're there. We're we're willing to help. We are there. We'll listen. There are one program at UK we have is called SOAR. Supporting others to rise. And this was developed in the chaplaincy program. It's um, a training program for anyone who's interested to help provide peer-to-peer help. There's a phone number. I give the faculty members this phone number for SOAR as well as
0: the CDC number. So thank you so much, Connie. The work is so impressive. And you didn't tell the story about taking my grandson, first semester freshman here at the University of Kentucky, taking him and his class on a mindfulness walk in the arboreum at the university. So another thank you for that great work. So let's go ahead and listen to a couple of our students. Uh, just as Dr. Jennings shared some of the very startling statistics about uh, health providers, And their state of mental health, we know that the same is true for students. And here in the College of Nursing, we did not get a free pass on that. And right before the pandemic, we had a class of 100 first semester juniors share with us that 73% of them were depressed or sad over the past four months, 57% were afraid to reach out for help. 42% felt excluded and or worthless. So I would like to ask Emily what you think about those statistics and and how you think that that compares today with just taking a guess with your class that's getting ready to graduate here in two weeks and then share with us a little bit about your journey, Emily, and what have you found strength in? And then the third thing, of course in three minutes, what's your next book that you're going to write about the COVID war with nurses on the front line?
5: Those are all amazing questions. Thank you for asking. Um, To speak to the statistics, I honestly would imagine they would be very similar. And I have to say it's, it's hard to speak to the overall experience of my class because I've so rarely seen them in two years. Um, just with all of the online learning and uh, separation for different clinical sites. Um, I know so many students are so fed up and just worried and experiencing so much loss and feel like they've really lost a piece of their experience and education. Um, For the majority of the pandemic, I've actually been e-tutoring teachers on how to go online and helping students who are just feeling so isolated. And it's really disheartening to see just a lot of people missing out on such an important part of their education. I mean, even on the Adolescent Behavioral Health Unit, it is rife with kids that directly fault the pandemic for their poor academic and social performances. Um, So definitely very difficult to see. And I know a lot of students who are just really heartbroken about it. Um, As Dr. Walmsley mentions, the College of Nursing has been working tirelessly to give us resources for home and create a safe learning environment that we all know that safety is a priority, of course, but many students are really just lacking connection. They come to clinical and they see so much burnout and fear, but I really admire my classmates for coming back each and every day and putting all this time and effort into their education. So many of my class, including myself, have already taken positions at hospitals and we're all just ready to work towards a better future, ready to put everything we've got into helping each other and our patients through this pandemic. Um, As you said, I'll be graduating in December of 2021 in just a few weeks. Very excited about that. Um, And I've really just been amazed by the faculty really coming together and ensuring the best education under such difficult circumstances genuinely and we are all so thankful. I really appreciate my classmates um where almost there used to be that regular nursing school competition there's really just connection now which I I really appreciate and love. Group messages have become almost a support center. I, I I cannot even believe how many messages I get a week saying hey guys we're almost done we're getting through this reach out if you need anything um So much community has been made, and my old study room at the library has been replaced with FaceTime calls to a lot of great students um, who have really just been my support system um, and have all been so amazing to me. As for the impact on me personally with the pandemic, I had kind of a unique experience of taking an elective public health course right as a worldwide uh, health crisis hit. So that really helped me process it some at the beginning to have a strong understanding of we can have a plan, we can get through this, and uh, healthcare as a field is prepared to tackle this. Right before the pandemic, had, I honestly was struggling with a lot of anxiety and stress, a lot of the things that come with nursing school. But I learned to take advantage of that time at home of quarantine, of course, to reflect. And I worked really hard to strengthen my connections, honestly, more than ever. Um, as many people call them, my like quarantine my roommates and close family members, I did get to see. uh, We put a lot of time and effort into doing things. Honestly, we should have been doing when it was easy and able to like going to the park several times a week, cooking meals together um, and negotiating a space that worked for all of our online work and school needs and even working hard to give back to the community, uh, such as giving vaccines at the stadium. It was just a really incredible experience to get to see and, and especially from people from different backgrounds and viewpoints um, about vaccines to see everyone was coming in, working together as a community to make things better. Um, I really appreciated the work, the weekly calls to my family. I never used to do uh, big Zooms with all my extended family. I got to do that. Um, I made my room, my sacred study space, and my clinical time was definitely prioritized. I really saw all the students taking much more advantage of their clinical time asking questions um, just because it was so limited. Um, And I took every extra opportunity I could to get in the clinical site. So those are some of the lessons I've learned and a little bit of how I've gotten through this impact. So real quick, Emily, what's the title of your next book? Sure. If I had to write another book, it'd probably be another compendium of stories uh, such as the War Queens Um, and kind of two compendium references come to mind Uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway, which is about an American fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Lots of themes of politics, mental health crisis, suicide, sacrifice and death. And secondly, Brave Men by Ernie Pyle, who was a World War II correspondent uh, who really lived on the front lines and experienced it with them. So if I had to pick, it would be primarily titled uh, Bravery Before Burnout and subtitled For Whom the Call Bell Tolls. (laughs) So. <laughs>
0: that that is great. Thank you so much, Emily. So now let's hear from Kent. Now, Kent, you are one of our BSN alums. You're right in the middle, finishing up to get ready to graduate in May with your DMP. You're also a clinical instructor, and you're right there on the front lines as well in the progressive care unit at UK Healthcare. So what can you share with us about what you're seeing? And also, if you would share with us your study that you're doing in the acute care setting.
6: Thank you, Dean Heath. Yeah, so I teach students every day. I had a clinical earlier today. And, you know, our students are stressed. You know, prior to COVID, that was already already present. But I think COVID has made that even, even worse. Okay, so the exams that they're taking, the uncertainty with COVID—you know, can we still go to clinicals on time? All these things, and that adds a lot of undue stress. So I think our students, you know, progressively getting worse with as COVID looms. Uh, but you know, there are ways that we can kind of bounce back from that, and that's where my project has has come into play, which started today. Actually, was the first day, but we're looking at how we can give our nurses and our students, our faculty, staff, the ability to create resilience. And so by doing so, I'm using Headspace. And this kind of all started with our CPR programming at Shaker Village, like we previously discussed. And so this, again, it's a tool. It's a mindfulness-based smartphone application. And it basically just gives people an opportunity to sit, be silent, focus on the present moment, focus on their breath. And by doing so, uh, we believe from the research that that helps create resilience and that gives nurses, nursing students, all these people that practice that the ability to, in the in the face of adversity, tragedy, stress, threats, trauma, all these things that we're seeing now, it gives them um, kind of a toolbox or resources to bounce back. And again, I really want to highlight... Um, In 2017 to 2020, the ANA had a Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation campaign with over 183,000 nurses taking part in this campaign. And the number one workplace hazard was workplace stress. The number one out of all the possible things, it was the stress. And so I think that really started to highlight the importance of, you know, we really have to focus on reducing stress, reducing burnout, reducing turnover. And really the best way to do that is focusing on the resilience of our providers. Um, so it's, I, I do want to highlight, you know, practicing that with my students is so helpful. You know, walking the talk, if you will, uh, every single day, I'm able to practice that with my my clinical students uh, after we finish clinical before as well. And with my nursing one-on-one uh, students that I teach in the classroom as well, really having that ability to practice kind of keeps me focused as well, and and really provides that to my students as well. So they're they're able to do that along the way. So,
0: Thank you, Kent. That's great. So we know that uh, silence is never good, and nurses, we know how to get our voices out there, especially when it comes to quality care delivery and as the number one most trusted profession. Uh, But to Dr. Jennings' point and many others, we are not speaking up enough about ourselves and how we're doing and how we need to stay focused on being healthy so that we can take care of others. So I'd like to hear from two of our psych mental health experts to hear some of their thoughts. So Evelyn, you're an editor of a prominent journal for mental health and wellness and an educator and a psych mental health nurse practitioner, what are you seeing different today compared to the past? And what is it that you can share with us that you've learned from your patients, your families, and your students on moving forward with our mental health and wellness? What
7: what I'm really seeing, and what is really, um, I think, a stark difference um, now versus a year and a half ago even, um, is the number of manuscripts that I'm receiving internationally on studies that have been done on nurses, uh, experiences with dealing with COVID, nurses on the front line, um, and also other healthcare providers. And now there's a new wave coming out of studies being conducted on how we can help those people. You know, what what tools, uh, as Kent mentioned, it's a tool, you know, the mindfulness. So what tools can we offer those healthcare care providers um, to help them deal with their stress, to become more resilient and and really to practice that self-care um, that we've all mentioned um, today? And it, it's and from my patient standpoint, what I'm seeing is. I think Dr. Jennings mentioned this, that there are some good things that happened uh, and continue to happen as a result of COVID and some not so good. But one of the positives that I've seen with my patients is they're utilizing the services. They're coming in to be seen um, to they and they don't have an excuse, if you will, to because of work or whatever because it's telehealth so they take time out of their uh, day for lunch and will have a telehealth session um so so that has i think made the the biggest difference for people is the telehealth aspect of that and one of the things that that I always do regardless of the pandemic or not is help patients look at what what self-care practices are helpful for them because everyone's different in what works uh, to help with their stress and really pushing them to the limit, if you will, even writing a prescription that they will walk 15 minutes a day working their way up to a 15 minute mile or, or whatever the case is for that particular person. And I have written more of those types of prescriptions in the last year probably than I have in my entire career. Because they want to do it, but there's also this kind of underlying hopelessness that things are going to improve. They'll take the medicine, they'll go to the therapy. So I'm writing the prescription for self-care, and they're actually doing it, right? Um, I don't know what that little piece of paper does, but but it's pretty powerful um, uh, for them. And I think that that is, you know, Kent mentioned. Um, walking the talk. And I think that's so important because, you know, for my students, for my patients, I I have to role model those behaviors, right? Because they'll say to me, whether it's student or patient, well, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Well, are you walking a 15 minute mile? Um, and, And so I have to share with them, you know, my time is, and I have to have my time, my Evelyn time, I call it. And that's 15 minutes after I get home from work, whether it's here at the College of Nursing or from the clinic. That 15 minutes is mine to sit and just I do guided imagery um, to to go through my day, to, to get rid of the stuff, if you will, um, and share that with my my students and clients as well. So I think it's it's very, very important that we have to take care of ourselves and another aspect that hasn't been really talked a lot about is caring for the mental health providers who are caring and providing those services. Like, you know, um, Joe mentioned, taking care of those folks too. They, they're kind of, my concern is that they're, they're overlooked in, in this, you know, realm of how we're helping everyone else get through the pandemic. and being there for them. And I'd like to share just a really snippet of a story of of such a provider. it actually was a minister who was in a, not in this town, outside community hospital and was really providing those chaplaincy services for the the staff, nurses, doctors, everyone. And, And she came in and she was like, I have no more to give. I'm, my vessel is empty, and I've got. I it can't be empty. I've got to get back out there because we've had two more deaths, and one was a mother and an unborn child. I've got to get back there and help the staff with this, but I don't have any reserves left. So working with her and and kind of shoring her up, if you will, during that one session. For her to go back and do what she needed to do and then I saw her again that next week and have continued to monitor her um, at, you know once monthly now for for several months. but we we've got to help those folks as well. and I think that everyone, well, I'm making a generalization, but people are feeling pretty beaten up. Uh, we heard that we saw that in the video that we shared. other folks have mentioned it, but we've got to, Not forget those chaplains and the the um, psychiatric providers in the places. They're going to need some support and help as well. And I think that's just so important that we recognize that um, and encourage and make it okay. You know, I basically had to say to her, it's okay for you to feel the way you're feeling. That's a normal response to what you've been going through. And in helping her accept, okay, um, I am an okay person. I am good at what I do. I just need some help now.
0: And that was a huge breakthrough. Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn. And that's a great segue uh, for Mark as our chief nursing officer for behavioral health at UK Healthcare and Eastern State Hospital. That's a huge enterprise, a lot of responsibility. So, Mark, if you would share with us what you're seeing in your work environment and then what you are doing to help make a difference in this space with your upcoming DMP project presentation so you can graduate May 2022, what you're doing in this area and why, what's been the driving force for that?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I want to maybe start uh, talking a little bit about uh, trends in what in our patients and our staff, our workforce. Uh, I think Dr. Jennings said it earlier that, um, you know, even before the pandemic, um, suicide was really, it uh, was already at a record high uh, for us. And so with the pandemic, it just really piled on even more. And we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst people ages 10 to 24, uh, and that's a rate that has um, it's increased uh, every year since 2007, and um, you know so we saw we've al- we're also seeing just present an increase in all types of presentations, anxiety, depression, particularly overdoses uh, related to addiction, um, and so what we're seeing in the workforce uh, are really symptoms um, that are similar to uh, PTSD or. Um, What you would see with persons that have been exposed to just long-term exposure to traumas, if you will. And so as a result, uh, in the workforce, what we're seeing now is that some of our nurses are actually deciding to leave the profession. They're deciding to, you know, this is the trusted profession for decades now, right? But there's people that are saying, you know what, I I just don't want to do this anymore. And um, the other thing, the other trend we're seeing in the workforce is uh, we're seeing nurses Uh, leave full-time jobs uh, to pursue uh, travel nursing, and when that happens, that creates a lot of hardships and really a reduction in the quality of the care uh, in all of our hospitals, but particularly uh, in uh, rural areas, and so some of the strategies you've heard today that we've put into place, um, uh, UK does a really good job of being innovative, and uh, we do that because we value our nurses, and we, we know our nurses and clinicians are legitimately our greatest resource. They're our greatest assets. And so you've heard some of them like SOAR, I believe uh, Connie Jennings, Dr. Jennings talked about the SOAR program that uh, uh, Joe Alverson uh, is intimately involved in uh, to help our staff. But you know, we do other things creatively like allowing our staff to utilize uh, their sick leave to proactively schedule. Um, mental health days. And we do this twice a year, uh, allow them to do this. And this allows them to engage in things that promotes their own mental health wellness. Um, and we do things even with our facility planning and design uh, when we're opening up new units and we're looking at the just the overall design of these units. Uh, the pandemic has affected us in a way that we realize just how important those break rooms are. Uh, particularly to disconnect so we look closely at things like the lighting the color of lights uh, soundproofing um, music and just a way to sort of make that truly as uh, much of a disconnect uh, for our nurses uh, as possible and so for my DMP project as you mentioned I am it is close it's it's nigh right Uh, just to talk a bit about it we uh, you know 2018, uh, we learned as a healthcare community that um, nurses uh, die by suicide at a rate that's nearly double uh, the general population. And so, you know, we've, we've sort of known that about physicians, but this is a relatively new discovery for us about nurses. And so hospitals are really struggling to find ways to address this problem, partially because it's probably not any one solution. It's going to take a lot of different ways. To address this problem. So, my DMP project um, is uh, just one of those ways. And it it, uh, focuses on providing nurses with a web based education module uh, that covers topics like nursing depression and nurse suicide. But particularly, it connects or it uh, provides them with education on how to uh, access enterprise services if they need them. And, how to, and most of all, how to refer other nurses to enterprise services if they need them. And so I think this will be a valuable um, web-based intervention that I think most organizations can do and should do on an annual basis. And certainly when they onboard new nurses, um, I think it'll be a great way uh, to break down the, uh, the stigma of mental health. And so, finally, um, just to talk a little bit about things that we have planned that we're working on that we we want to roll out very soon um, is uh, we're in the process of implementing a well-being uh, check-in plan uh, for nursing for nurse mental health for our nurses. And so, this is aimed explicitly at nurses at risk for suicide, and the goal is to connect them to services. And this is a proactive screen. Uh, and that approach is very different than the traditional uh, manner that we provide services for our all of our staff at UK. We have a ton of plethora of services, but what we fail to to think of is that when you're depressed and when you're suicidal, making an appointment for yourself when it has multiple steps to get care, sometimes that's just a burden that's too hard to carry. And so that's why we think this approach is going to be a really Uh, hopefully very productive. Uh, Certainly in the literature, it says that it has been productive in other organizations. Um, They'll receive a a survey once a year. uh, And if they want to participate, they can. And if they don't, they don't have to. But if they choose to participate, um, it's really looking to identify nurses that may be experiencing untreated or undertreated depression, and um, as well as being high risk for suicide. And if they're willing, it will li- literally connect them to the services and get the ball rolling instead of them having to raise their hand and say, I need help or pick up the phone and make an appointment and whatnot. So we're really excited about that. And those are those are some of the interesting things that we're going to be doing uh, to sort of combat um, some of the new, new discoveries about our the mental health, the fragility of, of the mental health of our clinicians.
0: Thank you, Mark. I thank you for what you're doing and thank each of you for what you're doing. It's really amazing uh, the work that's going on here at the University of Kentucky and how we stay committed to saving lives, transforming communities and inspiring hope. So as we look at getting ready to wrap up, I am asking each panelist, we're going to do just a rapid fire round table of what are you doing? to take care of yourself. So share your one tip, your one strategy, your one resource. And I'm going to start, circle back around to Joe Alverson as our Director of Chaplain Services at UK Healthcare. Joe?
1: Good yeah, Dean hey. Thank you for the opportunity to be here as well. Uh, the one thing that uh, I am doing is exactly the words you use, which is I'm taking care of myself, which means I ask myself, how am I doing today? How have I been doing the past few days and how have I been doing the past few weeks? And part of that also, um, I will also use one of our panelists is the is expert of this. and That's Dr. Mm-hmm. Jennings. Um, I also use um, two or three deep breaths at any point in time to stop and just breathe. Um, and once I do that, you'd be surprised how things change. So those are the two things that I'm doing uh, for myself and for my health uh, during this time.
0: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kelso, I'd like for you to share what you're doing for your own self-care, and you cannot mention West Virginia Athletics, okay? Okay, well,
2: that just took a whole piece out of there. So that Okay, I'm just, I'm just kidding, you're just kidding. No, no, I think for me, you know, trying to do what I've been doing, particularly at home, besides my dogs, I do a lot of puzzles. I've probably done 35 puzzles since this started, because it gets me into something else, And I've always also I read constantly. I'm always a reader, but I've gone to reading some of some books that I've already read some of my old favorites. It's almost like an old comfort food, you know, going back and just rereading things that I like that are mindless, that I don't have to think about that really are just for pure enjoyment to do that. Thank you.
0: Dr. Wamsley, now we all know about Benny and the Jets, Dr. Wamsley's dachshund (laughs) that she brings into the classroom with her students, but I think there's probably
3: something else that you also do for your own self-care. I'm really going to have to echo Joe's self-care. I think everybody on this panel is really good at taking care of others, In our nursing 101 class today, one of the students raised her hand and said, can I make my gratitude letter to myself? And I said, thank you. You've given me a gift because I have a really hard time being as kind to myself as I am to others. So I really would echo Joe's sentiments. And then Connie Jennings has taught me a very powerful guided imagery. Um, So I'm, I'm on it with Evelyn as well with the guided imagery. And at the end of the day, Connie's taught me to empty my bowl to put the bowl back in the stream and let all of the bowl that I carried all day long with me to let it go back to the stream and to go to bed and go and rest. Because normally I hold that bowl and I keep it all night. And when I get up, it's still, still all circling around. But Connie has taught me a lovely guided imagery where I take my water that I've used all day long to nourish myself and others and I put it back in the stream. I love
0: it. Thank you. So, Dr. Jennings, let's hear what it is that you do for your own self-care. Oh, thank you, Janie. I'm so privileged to work
4: with so many people that give me love and power and sustenance. I work a lot with Leanne and Joe, and I thank you guys so much. My biggest remedy for this past couple of years has been reverting to my childhood. I was a big Girl Scout camper hiker girl. (laughs) And I'm back to nature. And I, I'm so proud of myself that I'm remembering to look up. I've become quite a cloud watcher. And I'm having the best time making pictures out of clouds. <laughs> I've loved it. Loved it. I have a swing on the back porch and I can lay down in the swing and watch the clouds. And Evelyn, thank you for writing those prescriptions. Those are fabulous. I encourage all of us to write prescriptions for butterfly counts and tree maps and creek walks. We need to remind us all to get back outside and connect. There's medicine out there in those woods. (laughs) That's great. Thank you.
0: All right, Emily, let's hear what you're doing for self-care as a graduating soon-to-be BSN who will pass her boards on the first time and go to work for UK healthcare.
5: Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Um, I would definitely say in terms of resiliency, sometimes your viewpoint of a situation is really the only thing that you can control. So taking advantage of that every day and taking every opportunity to be positive and um, time relaxing is an investment in your performance. So, Uh, Every day I I eat lunch off the unit, I go outside if it's not too cold or uh, just anywhere I can find. That's my own time. And it makes me a better nurse.
0: Oh, that's great. Thank you. So, Kent, if you want to go ahead and start singing a song, that's fine. (laughs) I'm not sure. Maybe that's your self-care, but maybe there's another strategy. What do you have to say, Kent?
6: Yeah, I love singing, though. Maybe another time, Uh, (laughs) Dean. I, I will say, again, kind of wrapping back around my students, really, uh, my practice with my students is what helps ground me. And practicing that with them, really, um, that's, that's the best way to do it, you know, practicing what you preach. And I, I want to share this, um, this quote that I have um, kind of accumulated together, but it's, we must first care for ourselves before we can effectively care for others. Because you can care for others now, whether or not it's going to be good care or effective care. That's really the key. So I I just want to leave everyone with that.
0: Oh, thank you, Kent. Okay, Dr. Parrish, what's your self-care? So like I I mentioned earlier, I do some uh, guided imagery
7: when I get home each day. But probably a couple of the most uh, important things, and not that that's not important, but Things that I really enjoy and I, um, doing is I'm learning to fly fish. So getting out there and and just practicing fly fishing, whether I catch anything or not, it really doesn't matter. But it's it's what everyone else has said. Nature is is so healing, and it's important to get out in nature and enjoy that. And then I also enjoy uh, reading. Uh, particularly mysteries. I can get lost in those for hours and forget what I'm doing. So those are my self-care in, in addition to some, you know, physical exercise
0: that that I will do. But those are the main things. Thank, Thank you. you. Mark, let's hear it for you.
8: So Lynn, I have to admit, uh, I'm going to have to dig even deeper because you took my jigsaw puzzles. I, I was almost, in, in a weird way, I was sort of I'm embarrassed to share that. My my wife got me into it during the pandemic. She is a an avid jigsaw puzzle, white mountain, all those puzzles. She's very specific brand and everything. <laughs> and so she got me into that. So I'm going to dig a little deeper and get a little stranger, maybe. Uh, I, I do think it's hobbies. I do think it's finding something else to disconnect, help you disconnect. And it's really, uh, it's no longer like, just fun or whatever. It's its necessary. These are like survival skills now. And so for me, I, I, um, I've taken a liking to um, shoes. I've always liked shoes, but dress shoes, old antique dress shoes. And I do a lot of, I've got a friend of mine who's a cobbler in Virginia and he, uh, we work together to kind of restore these old shoes. And I've got shoes that are 60 years old, 70 years old. And And there's some uh, satisfaction that I take in uh, taking something that's maybe beat up and old and doesn't look great and whatnot. And just spending that time uh, getting it to a place where uh, the casual bystander wouldn't realize that these shoes are, you know, 60 years old, 70 years old. So That's Uh, great. No, I love it.
0: I love it. So in closing, we wanna thank you for this time that you have allowed us to be with you. This work that we're doing is not easy, but absolutely critical for the health and wellness of ourselves and others. At the University of Kentucky, we are committed to advancing self-compassion. As you have heard, that includes not being so hard on ourselves and that it can be done in a number of low cost and no cost ways. Regardless of our challenges in our lives, personal and professional, we hope you will approach life one day at a time with gratitude, kindness to self and others. We believe that we this will help us all move forward during volatile, uncertain, ambiguous and challenging times, regardless of the work and learning and learning environments that we're in. Thank you. And remember, cancer prevention starts with some basics of holistic care of ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually. Thank you so much.